When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Oxford Town, Oxford Town. Everybody's got their heads bowed down. The sun don't shine above the ground. Ain't going down to Oxford Town. This is Bob Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fine Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about Oxford Town from 1963's The Freewheeling Bob Dylan is fellow Bobcat Matt Arnett. Hi, Matt. Hey, Rob. How are you? It's nice to be here. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for doing the show. It's I've been a fan. I've listened since I heard about the show, and it's uh, I'm glad we were finally able to find a time to do this. Absolutely. So I before we get to the song, and of course we have to start with your origins, how you became a fan of Bob in the first place. I have to publicly thank you uh, on Twitter on Bob Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago. I posted this amazing thing that I got in the mail which was a signed photo of Jane Fonda. The legend of Jane, I don't even have to explain who Jane Fonda is. Everyone listening knows who Jane Fonda is. But not only was it autographed to me, it was featuring uh, quotes from, from a Bob Dylan song because I had happened to mention on an episode a little while back uh, when we were my guests and I were discussing dreams and how random they can be that Jane Fonda appeared in a dream I had, which just seemed so bizarre to me. I hadn't watched one of her movies all that recently or anything. And so it was just, it seemed so such a strange thing. And then bang, here is this photo of, of this, one of the most iconic figures in Hollywood history with my name on it, quoting uh, the, you know, I will be in your dreams. You can be in mine, which was just, it completely floored me. And so I, you know, I didn't mention your name on Twitter. Cause at the time I didn't know if necessarily that I was free to do that, but now I know I am. So, Thank you so much for procuring that because it was it's just an amazing gift. Well, it I I was listening to the show and you mentioned uh that you had had a dream about Jane. <laughs> um and immediately right when you said that the the lyrics to Talking World War 3 Blues came in my head and it just seemed like a natural request to make of Jane and as you know now cuz I told you after all that happened we're loosely related so it wasn't it wasn't as hard to get as it might seem <laughs> um, and uh so i i asked her and uh I, I wish i wish she had been more familiar with the lyrics she wasn't um but i i told i sent her the lyrics of the song and that was nice of her to do that it absolutely was it was very generous of you to think of it and request it and it was very generous of, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to say Jane, Miss Fonta, uh, to do that. And uh, as I mentioned to you off air, uh, over the years, I'm not a big autograph collector. It's just not a thing that I have really uh, concerned myself with. But I have amassed a few over the years, uh, randomly or from people that I've you know, particularly liked. And so uh, the photo you sent me is now on a wall uh, by our, our, we have a, um, sort of self-proclaimed video store installed in our in our home here and we have to the right of the video store is all of our signed photos that i've managed to have over the years i have one of rod taylor from the time machine i have one of valerie perrine from superman movies i have one of eva marie saint from uh, north by northwest and uh you know all the hitchcock films um on the waterfront of course and and so now jane is there 
Uh, and it's just an amazing artifact to have. So again, I just, I needed to thank you so much for that. It was just an absolutely, <laughs> absolutely amazing I'm, I'm, thing to get in the mail. It's so rare that, um, things like that align and, and, uh, I'm glad it did. And, and it, it, I knew that when you got it, it would be a, one of those, like, what in the world? How did this yeah. happen? <laughs> Dude, I pulled it out of the envelope and I'm looking at it and I'm like, what is it? And the channel, that's Shane Fonda. That's weird. And then, Oh, look, it's signed. Oh my God. My name is, oh my God. She's quoting Bob Dylan. It just, it came in on a Friday at the end of the workday. And I, I was, I showed it to my wife. I was like, I can't, what? You know, I just could not believe it. So again, thank you very much. It's just an absolutely um, wonderful thing to do. So, okay. Um, of course, again, we have to know, you know, your Bob Dylan origin story before we get to Oxford Town. So, so what's your, what is your Bob Dylan origin story? Well, I, um, I, I grew up thankfully in a, in a house of, um, people, especially my father, who was, uh, a very, uh, I would say a very smart man, the smartest one I ever knew and, uh, who had a, uh, had traveled the world and seen everything there was to see. And, and fortunately, one of the things that was important to him throughout his life was music. And he had an amazing record collection in our house. And as a kid, I think I was, I mean, obviously Bob Dylan, where you and I are about the same age, you can't live in the world without, you know, through osmosis being aware of him. Yeah. So his name was familiar to me and I found, you know, digging. I used to spend a lot of time looking through my dad's uh, vinyl collection and came across a Bob Dylan record. And I think I was about 10. I might have been 11. And his name was very familiar to me. And I listened to the to that record and flipped it over, listened to both sides, and then went back to the shelf. And there was another one and another <laughs> one and another one. And I just, uh, I was just uh, hooked. And 40 years later, I'm still hooked. <laughs> uh, just never, it it just, consumed me the music and then of course i started following all of you know the things that influenced dylan and and just became very interested in the music that it influenced him and people he had influenced and every time you know somebody was the new bob dylan i checked them out and <laughs> i think it's had an outsized influence on the music i've listened to uh, from then until until now that's uh how many do you, do you happen to remember how many records that might have been like did you just go from one to one to one all in one sitting well i i can tell you because i mean i don't know the exact number without counting them in my head i remember when i was about 13 after i had gone through all the records talking to my dad about it and he had quit um he had sort of quit listening not that he had lost interest but he just had you know four kids and a busy life and he had sort of stopped listening to dylan right about the time slow train coming came out mm -hmm. and uh and so i think that would have meant street legal was probably the last record he had maybe desire he had, but but he was all of the 60s and early 70s stuff he had and that was the 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 
part of Dylan's career he was most familiar with. I do remember he was the one that told me, you know, again, this is pre-internet, you know, there whatever books were available, you know, you could read. But of course, not all of that information was always as accurate as as it is now. He had told me about Dylan's Christian period, and he had said he sort of lost interest mm. during that time, which is ironic now in hindsight, because that particular period, especially after the release of Trouble No More, has become some of the music I go back to, some of the Dylan music I go back to the most. And unfortunately, my father's no longer living. I wish he was so I could say, Dad, you were wrong. Listen to this. <laughs> stuff. And I, I believe he would agree with me. You know, he bought into the whole, you know, Dylan's gone, you know, to religious music. And I think my dad, who was a bit of a of an activist at heart, I think, you know, uh, and in roughly the same age as Dylan, he was a little bit older. But I think what Dylan Dylan's, you know, early sort of what air quotes protest music really appealed to my dad. Mm. I, I'm trying to imagine like if you were a Bob Dylan follower and the last record you get is street legal because you're probably like, boy, is this guy okay? Like, <laughs> it doesn't right. sound, <laughs> it's a great record, but boy, I'm kind of worried about this guy. He's <laughs> sort of all right. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this in other episodes. I mean, I, I am young enough to, I didn't live through the religious period. I mean, I was alive during those years, but I was a kid and I wasn't following Bob. And I didn't know anything about that. I, I remember being aware of God to serve somebody because I'd seen him do it on Saturday Night Live and stuff, but I wasn't following him. And so it didn't, it didn't, it didn't land on me, but I would imagine trying to live through it at the time. You're like, what, what is, what is this guy doing? What is happening? You know, what is going on? And, you know, with benefit of hindsight, you're like, well, that was the period that he went through and I can judge it by those standards, but you know, at the time, it's, is he coming out of this? Is this going to be nothing but Jesus music for the, for the, you know forever? So I can imagine. But you said you liked it. You you took to it at the time. I, I at the time I didn't really. Um, I listened to the records my dad had, and my dad also had a a habit. Uh, and fortunately, I still have all of these somewhere in storage. My dad, uh, who is a who is an art historian and a collector of all kinds of things mostly i mean he's a a well-known art collector and so visual art is what he's most known for but he was a curator and a collector and so he would make all of these mixed tapes of you know music you know 1960s music from new orleans or you know girl groups Hmm. just he just he kind of made his own playlist before that was a thing and so he had made all of these bob dylan tapes of you know that uh cobbled together songs from different records and stuff and so i didn't i I listened to a lot of that so i wasn't at 11 12 and really by the time i was 15 i was i mean it, it it isn't all i listened to but Everybody that knew me that I went to school with, like I was, you know, like, oh, he's the Bob Dylan guy. I mean, like everybody <laughs> knew that. And and at that time. There were worse things to be called. Not really at the time. <laughs> because he was not, you know, he he was, as we all know, 
the the early you know the early eighties were were not you know right. critically. I mean, with with hindsight, I think we we'll, we all can agree that a lot of that stuff was wrong. But he wasn't. It wasn't exactly cool to be a Bob Dylan fan when you were fifteen years old. <laughs> you guys got to hear "Knocked Out Loaded." It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even I was trying to defend, you know, Empire Burlesque and "Knocked Out Loaded," and then under a under a red sky and you know like it wasn't the easiest it wasn't at the time it 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 wasn't the easiest music to defend and i have to have to say i i'm i live i i grew up in atlanta georgia and dylan you know at the time that i was old enough to go to concerts bob wasn't touring down here mm-hmm. so there weren't a lot of opportunities to see him and so he was sort of frozen in time as, you know, a, an icon from the 60s. I didn't really think of him in those days as like a living, breathing person that I might be able to go see in concert because he just wasn't coming here that I was aware of. Well, that that leads perfectly to my next question. Have you seen him live at this point? So many times I can't I couldn't count. <laughs> I mean, what, what are we talking? What ballpark? What are we talking? About? I mean, if I had to guess, I would say somewhere between eighty-five and a hundred and twenty times. Maybe. Wow! Woo! <laughs> That's and amazing. I am, you know, like my father. I got the kind of collecting, curating bug. So I would, you know, if if in the early nineties is probably in the nineties, I saw him a lot because he would do, I was trying to remember the tours, you know, he would do like Shreveport. And I mean, I've seen him in some towns. Most people probably have never even heard of Mm -hmm. venues. You know, I was, a friend of mine was asking me recently, what's the smallest place I've seen Dylan. And I saw him at a, at a little chapel in new Orleans. I think it was like the Tulane chapel that was in the 90s and if that place fits 500 that i I would be surprised wow Um, that would probably be amazing to see him in that intimate venue it was pretty amazing and i've i've seen him in like little convention centers civic centers in little towns that you know or pascagoula mississippi or you know weird you know uh with you know a thousand a thousand seats you know or not even you know probably geez that's amazing so what i mean do you have some of like particular favorite ones that you've seen when was the last time you've seen him the last time i saw him i've seen about eight or nine of the rough and rowdy ways holy um, shows i saw uh the last show i saw was in uh oklahoma city i think was the last show i saw Wow, that's I fantastic! Think that was in, uh, maybe last summer. I'm trying to remember when I, I was in Dallas for work, and it was the uh, it was the last night of the of the Rough and Rowdy Ways U.S. tour, mm-hmm. um, and I really wanted to get to Tulsa to see the show in Tulsa, um, but I couldn't I couldn't sneak away that day and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I was in Dallas, and so I, like I said, I was there for an art exhibition, and 
that was a night off. And so I went and rented a car and drove to Oklahoma City. <laughs> so now to have seen him that many times, there's there must have been points where you've seen him. You just talked about rough and rowdy ways. Like you're seeing him multiple nights in a row kind of thing, like three or yeah, four so in a row. That's what I was saying. Like I would right. take when I was in college, if I would have fall break and he was playing somewhere, I would take some days off on the front end and the back end and and go and see eight eight shows in a row or wow. nine shows in a row. Um, which in those days, it's very different. The rough and rowdy ways tour, you know, it's, as you know, it's mostly the same set every night uh, at various points in the tour. He's, you know, he would add, he added that eighth song, the ninth song from uh, <laughs> yeah. Rep and Rowdy Ways. Finally, and- they'll start doing Rubicon, yeah. <laughs> exactly. He started doing uh, Rubicon and he dropped, you know, he changed one of the earlier songs and he stopped doing this, you know, like, but it's mostly the same show every night. Uh, you know, that the early part of the rough and water, rowdy ways, I think I saw about five or six of those. And it, and I started on about the, I think I, I think Knoxville was the first show I went to. And, and that was like the second night of the, of the, of the, uh, order that he would do for the rest of that run. And so I saw five or six shows and the set list was exactly the same every night, but the show was so different every night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I've, I tried to describe it to people. It was less, the shows feel less like a rock and roll concert and more like a theatrical performance for the, for the better, not the worse. Well, okay. So explain that. What does that mean? What does that mean exactly to you? Well, I mean, he's, you know, in the nineties when I was seeing him, you know, if he's playing 16 songs from one night to the next, there could be nine different songs than right. you saw the night before. And, right. and, and on the rough and rowdy ways tour, it was exact. It was like a, I mean, it's like a Broadway show. The lines stay the same, but it, you know, it, 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 it felt more theatrical. It didn't, it, it it felt like a theater performance in mm. all the best ways. Mm. And, and, you know, I don't know if that's his age and it makes a lot more sense to, you know, to dial it in. I mean, he's, it, it, you know, with all of these guys, you know, David Byrne and, and Bruce Springsteen doing these Broadway, turning their shows into broad, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. it's just what people do. I don't know, but it, it, I, I've loved every show and 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 added shows that I wasn't supposed to go to, but I would, <laughs> you know, like I I happened to be in Connecticut and he was playing in at, at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, and it was you know a couple hours from where I was, and I had just seen him at the Beacon, but I was like I've got to go because it just <laughs> I just I. I I can't not go. Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's outstanding. That's an amazing number. I'll ne- I will never get to that number, but that's that is truly impressive. I don't I don't know if I have it in me the fortitude to see him five nights in a row even if I could. I just don't know if I'm built that way. It's uh, I the closest I I saw him twice in one day when he played Atlantic City, he did an afternoon show and an evening show and I went to both. 
And then one other time I saw him in Philly and then Boston like two or three days later. But that's about as close as I've ever done. I don't, I just don't know if I would, even Bob Dylan, if I would start, I mean, I know obviously the Rough and Rowdy Ways is a little different because as you're saying, he's doing the same songs. But I just right. don't know if I would, I don't know if I'm built to go to that many concerts in that period of time. I just think I, constitutionally, I would just get like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta well, go do something else. You know, it's interesting. The, I totally understand that. And I think that the rationale for me in 2022 and 2021 is different than it was in 1990. In 1990, I was a kid, you know, I was in my early 20s. And I, you know, he was playing all of these small towns and small, interesting theaters. And I really used the excuse of a Bob Dylan show to go and explore uh, the part of the country he was in. And a lot of those were Southern runs. And so I would go and visit all these small towns and go to the museums during the day and go go to the show. And it was weird because in those days there were a lot of Dylan heads who were doing the, you know, the whole tour and, they would show and a lot of those shows back in those days were general admission. And those people would literally show up at the venue at eight o'clock in the morning and just sit waiting for the doors to open. <laughs> I don't have the constitution for no. that. To me, no. to for me that, no. that is a waste of a life. But I would use I use the you know, it was like the Bob Dylan show was like having a wonderful meal at the end of every day. It mm. wasn't, it was a, it was an excuse to go explore the region and see things and visit museums and, you know, cultural institutions and see towns I hadn't spent any time in. And so Dylan was the excuse to do that rough and rowdy ways. You know, at that point, Dylan's in his eighties and I'm not sure how long he's going to be doing it. And, and I just, I just I just need something told me I needed to do it. That's marvelous. I haven't really had a chance to do that to like, because generally I see him when he comes around here, which, you know, I just, we just go to the show and then go home. Uh, there's only been a couple of times where I've actually been in a, another town to see him. So that's, that's really interesting. You're kind of doing what it sounds like Bob does is that he goes and he goes and he explores the town a little bit. I mean, I think that, that has to feed into his music is that he's out there probably really interacting with real people and doing real things. He's not just living on his tour bus and then his hotel and then the concert and then back to tour bus. So that's great that you kind of made like a whole, as you sort of said, just like a whole meal out of it. That's right. I mean, that, that was the idea. I mean, I would, it was very much about Bob Dylan, but I wasn't, you know, I let Bob Dylan, I let his tour schedule uh, lead me even in my own region where I live to places that, you know, there were a lot of places he was playing in those days that, you know, nowadays we might call flyover towns, places Mm. you wouldn't, you wouldn't think to go. It's, and I have to say, he's always, I've always admired that about him, that he wasn't just playing Atlanta, Raleigh, you know, rich, you know, whatever, DC, New York, Boston, in those days, especially he was hitting a lot of towns that he was 
certainly the only iconic musician that was going to to you know Pascagoula and Shreveport and <laughs> and some of these uh Tuscaloosa um <laughs> some of these towns weren't getting uh you know major although I'm not even sure at that time Bob was thought of as a major touring act he wasn't yeah that might have been he's kind of using his lower level of uh man I don't want to say fame but his lower level as a as a draw as a contract act to be able to do that. I mean, there's not, not a knock on these people, but like, you know, Paul McCartney can't play some small, can't play a church somewhere. Right. He just can't do it because then you'd have a riot. Uh, so that, you know, Bob was able to kind of use leverage that lesser heat on him to be able to, to do that. So that's, that's really fascinating. I think that's, that's terrific. I love Dylan that you Barton, did that. I think Dylan has always attracted a different, I mean, you know, I guess maybe I'm saying that because people like me and you are drawn to him. And so right. we want to put ourselves in a different category. But <laughs> Dylan never attracted, um, you know, the, 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 there was, it wasn't the same kind of pinup interest, you know, PI pinup, not pent, you know, he wasn't that kind of pop star. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I always keep up and look where he's going and hope that my schedule puts me in the same region he's in. And if it does, more than likely you'll see me there. That's fantastic. That's just fantastic. All right. Well, <laughs> cool. Sorry. Let's talk about Oxford Town. This has always been one of my favorite songs by Bob. Uh, I'm so glad that we're finally getting around to, to discussing it. It's, it's such a usual, so unusual. First of all, you know, we've got its brevity. It's one of his shortest songs. It's about such a serious topic. And yet it is one of the most peppy, upbeat tunes <laughs> in his whole catalog. It's really quite the kind of a conundrum of a song. So why did you want to talk about Oxford Town? Well, speaking of those, you know, early, late eighties, early nineties tours, that I used to make um, in 1990, uh, Dylan did a Southern tour. He was playing all college towns in the Southeast. And I thought I shouldn't miss that. Uh, some of my teachers in college probably thought that I should have missed that tour, but I decided to vanish from school and follow <laughs> the Southern Bob Dylan Southern tour. And I went, I took a friend who I had gotten turned, who I had turned on to Bob Dylan when we were in about ninth or 10th grade, who had become a big Dylan fan and was always willing. If I called and did all the organizing, he was always willing to hop in the car and go with me. And we followed, we did about seven or eight shows. I can't remember exactly how many, and one of those uh, shows was at the Coliseum in Oxford, Mississippi. Oh, so and you saw the one time he did this live? I saw the one time he did it live. Wow. And, and on top of that, on that tour, my friend Greg and I decided, you know, we we had long days and we decided that we would 
go to a show. And when the show was over, we would sort of live our lives. I mean, not, it wasn't, we weren't trying to be rock stars or anything. We just, <laughs> we decided that we would, when the show was over, we would do like a like the band does. And we would go to the next town and, and, you know, however, you know, they're all Southern towns. So it was never, uh, they weren't, you know, the drives weren't, weren't too terrible. Um, so when the show was over, we would leave, we would get in the car and we would drive to the next town and spend the night there so that we, like the artists would wake up, um, in the town where the show was the next day. And, and the show ended in Oxford. Uh, Dylan had played the song. Of course, no internet. Uh, I wasn't someone who subscribed to Dylan newsletters and all of that. So I didn't know that that was the only time he'd ever played it live. Yes. I, I, that's normally something we discuss at the end. But yeah, uh, he does, he, he performed the song one time. October 25th, 1990 in Oxford, Mississippi. You can find this version on YouTube. And it's fun to think that you're, you're in the crowd noise there. If you listen to it I on was, YouTube, I was in the crowd noise. And, and it, as I recall, I'm glad to know it's on YouTube. I will have to go back and, and make sure that my memory is correct. Um, it, the, the short song that it is was even shorter live. Cause and he before, dropped a verse out of it. Well, that will come up here in just a second. So <laughs> it was a shorter version and he announced before he played it, that somebody had asked him to play it. And oh, okay. You can hear him on the YouTube say something, but I couldn't make it out, but you hear him talking. So, okay. Yeah. So he, I, I forget his exact words. I thought he said somebody's name, but if there's a recording, we could, we could check this. He's, I thought he said, you know, I thought it was a woman's name, but I could just be misremembering that. And he played the song is very, you know, upbeat, like the song normally is. Um, and then it just sort of fades out. And I, I would be surprised if it was a minute and a half long. <laughs> and, and then the show ended and my friend Greg and I got in my car and we started driving towards Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is where the show was the next day. And when we got on, I mean, at that at that time in 1990 in, in Mississippi, it wasn't leaving Oxford. There isn't a major interstate mm. right through there. So we got on the road. Maybe it's Highway 78. I'm not sure. We got on the highway and we were driving and we looked up and we were like, oh, my God, that's the bus. Oh, the no. Bus, the bus was in front of us. Oh. And so... <laughs> As 20, whatever we were, you know, 21 year olds or whatever, we were, I was just like, just keep the bus in sight and <laughs> knowing that we're driving literally on the same, you know, street that Bob is on, that will keep us awake because it's a, it's a, probably a solid three hour drive to Tuscaloosa from there. <laughs> and so we were driving, we were following the bus. And you were the tailing them. It's like an episode of the Rockford Files or something. It was <laughs> like that. But I made I said to Greg, who was driving at the time, I said, please don't get too close to the bus. I don't <laughs> want to look like, you know, we're stalking them. And so we were driving and we got to the Tuscaloosa exit, the exit where you would go. You would turn off to the right to to go to Tuscaloosa. And the bus kept going straight. Hmm. 
And so Greg said, what should we do? And I said, well, just follow, let's, let, let's just follow the bus. <laughs> like 1.30 in the morning or something. So we followed the bus. It continued on for about 30 miles. And we got to the outskirts of Birmingham, Alabama, which is a town that I know very well. Um, I, I work with a couple of artists who live in Birmingham and artists that my father worked with. So I know the town very well and the bus was driving and the bus put on its blinker to get off uh, to exit towards Birmingham. And I just said to Greg, I don't know why it hit me. I said, I know exactly where they're going. And he said, how do you know where they're going? And I said, because there's only one nice hotel in Birmingham. <laughs> and I said, go straight and get off at the next exit. And so we kept driving. I said, take a left, take a right. And, and we pulled in to the parking lot of the Tutwiler Hotel and we parked the van. I mean, we weren't in a van. We were in a blaze, a Chevy Blazer. We parked and I was like, this is probably where they're staying. Let's see if they have a room. And we were not on a Tutwiler Hotel budget trip, but we parked and I went inside and I talked to the, the clerk at the desk. And as I was talking to her, Bob Dylan's tour bus pulled up. <laughs> oh my and, God. <laughs> and Greg, um, I, I, I hadn't talked to Greg in many years, but like six months ago, we reconnected for something. And I asked him if my memory of this was correct. And, and he remembered it very vividly as I did. The bus pulled up and I was standing there talking to the woman at the counter and Bob Dylan and his, I forget the guy's name now, the guy that used to be his kind of right hand. He was bald and he used to travel with Bob. Um, they both got off the bus and they started walking in and and Dylan was wearing his, like a hoodie with a black leather jacket on. It was so obviously him. So I just, you know, being young and dumb or not, went to the front door of the hotel and opened the door for Bob. <laughs> When he walked through, I said, that was a really nice show tonight. And he was walking past me and he did a double take and he stopped and he turned around and he kind of cocked his head to the side. And he said, you were there? And I said, I was. And he said, that's weird. Or I forget his exact words. He was like, you were there? And I said, yes, sir. It was a really good show. And he said, thank you. And I said, and my friend Greg, who is so shy and Greg was, if it's possible to have been a bigger Bob Dylan fan, he was, he stood about 10 feet away and he did not move because he couldn't believe that his friend <laughs> was talking to our hero. And I said, I said to Bob Dylan, <laughs> I can't believe I said this. I said, I said, it was nice to hear Oxford town, but you took the guns in the club. No, you did I not did. say that. Swear to God. <laughs> said, you didn't tell me any of this in prep for this show, man. Because I didn't, I, I mean, I, we're talking about it now. Oh my God. I said, you took the guns and clubs out of it. And he looked at me like he cocked his head, almost like a dog when it can't understand what you're doing. He looked the other way and he said, I couldn't remember the words. And I thought, 
you know, because I've listened to Oxford Town 10,000 times and knew every word and could have could have told him to him. I thought he was just being coy with me. And I thought that he had taken some of the meat out of the song because it's not a complimentary song about the town that he was singing it in. Mm -hmm. And then many years later, and so he walked over to the counter and we kept talking. I just walked with him and my friend Greg stayed about 10 feet away from us. And we got to the desk and the woman, Bob checked in and got his key and I said to Dylan, I said, my friend Greg is a huge fan. And would you mind signing an autograph? And he said, sure. And he said, do you have anything for me to sign? And I didn't. And the woman who I had been talking to at the desk reached over and grabbed a Tutwiler uh, hotel brochure and handed it to Dylan. Nice. And he, and he he said to me, do you have a pen? And I said, no, I I, I don't. And so the woman came around the desk and handed him a pen and he signed his name on the Tutwiler for my friend Greg, who still never has moved and never said a word to Dylan. And I gave it to his life flash before his eyes. Probably he really was. And I handed it to Greg. And then Dylan said to me, do you want one? And I said, sure. And so he, the woman handed him another Tutwiler brochure and he signed an autograph for me. And thanked us for being at the show and got on the elevator and went upstairs. Unbelievable. That first yep. of all, you talked to Bob more than some people he's played concerts with, I think. This uh, is that, true. That is I look, okay. Anyone who's listening, if you are a professional, or even if not professional, if you're an animator, please contact me at the show because this needs to be turned into a short film. Well, a short animated adventure the, because the story, this story is so amazing. The story actually gets better, Rob. Oh, for God's so sake. So the okay, next, I'm sorry to interrupt. Jeez. The next, the next day. And the story I'm about to tell you is a hundred percent true. I'm not embellishing. <laughs> we'll get to Oxford town, everybody. I promise. We will. <laughs> so, ap- so the next day I ran into this guy named Mark, who was one of these Dylan people who followed you know we had met him i had met him on a a previous tour he was just one of those guys who just went to bob dylan shows it was like that was his life and i had told him we had run into him at uh in oxford in uh tuscaloosa the next day a few hours before the show and and we told him this story that i just told you and he couldn't believe that Dylan had signed an autograph. And I said, not only did he sign an autograph, he asked, you know, I just told him the whole story. I just told you. And as we're talking, we're in the, like a, I don't remember if it was grass or gravel parking lot around the basketball arena in Tuscaloosa. And we looked up and there was Bob with his dog and Vic was the guy's name, Victor, maybe. Not Victor. That wasn't his name. I forget his name. Who was walking with Bob and Dylan had his hoodie up and he was just walking through all of the people who were tailgating. And he was just walking towards the bus was parked, you know, at the other end of the parking lot. 
And Dylan was just walking through this crowd of people who were there to see him. Nobody realized it was him except us because one, he was wearing exactly the same clothing he had on the night before when I saw him. And so we said, there he is right there. And so we walked about 20 feet so that we were right in the path. And when he got to us, he looked up and he saw me and he clearly recognized me from the night before and looked and, and I said, hello. And Greg this time said, hello. And the guy that, uh, Mark that was with us said, hello. And Dylan sort of paused and Mark said, Bob, will you sign an autograph? And he looked around, nobody was around. And he said, okay. And Rob reached, I mean, Rob, you're Rob. Mark reached into his pocket and he had, you know, uh, pockets full of all of his tour stuff, you know, just ticket stubs and all kinds of stuff. And he pulled out a ticket stub from the night before and he handed it to Bob to sign. Again, this is 1990. I wasn't involved in music at the time. I had, you know, been to concerts, but didn't know how any of this worked. He handed his ticket from Oxford to Bob to sign. And Dylan took it in his hand and he said, it's not ripped. They didn't rip the ticket. And Ra- and and Mark was like, I-, I don't know why. And he looked at all of us and he said, why didn't they rip the ticket? And we said, we don't know. And I, I pulled my ticket out and my ticket was ripped. Mm-hmm. And I said, they ripped mine. And he said to Mark, why didn't they rip your ticket? Oh, my God. And Mark said, I don't know. At the time, I didn't realize that's probably how they were getting paid. You know, the the you went in, they rip your ticket, they put it in a box at the end of the night, they count them up and your 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 fee has something to do with, you know, tickets sold because they weren't. You know, they were just printed. It wasn't like computer. You know, it's not right. like the way people don't have out. their cell phones out and they're scanning their apps. Exactly. Yeah. They're not scanning it. It's going into a computer. They're probably hand counting at the end. So Dylan was like, why didn't they why didn't they rip the ticket? Oh, my God, that's and, terrifying. I know. <laughs> and, and and but it was in hindsight, it's it's weird because I, who would even think he would even no, he was. Right. <laughs> He's worrying about it on that granular level. <laughs> exactly, but I mean, this is 1990. It might have made a difference then. I don't know. I, I, I still have never. So he said to Mark, "What is that other ticket?" And Mark had a ticket from Elvis's birthplace in Tupelo, Mississippi, because the perfect stop there. Perfect item. Exactly, and so. So Mark said, oh, this is a ticket from Elvis's birthplace. And Dylan reached his hand out and, and Mark handed it to him and he looked at it. And he said, they ripped Elvis's ticket. <laughs> and and he said, right. really mon- he's really monomaniacal about this. He, he said, it get, it really, it gets so much better. Oh he my said, why God. did they rip Elvis's ticket, but not my ticket? And of course, we're like 20-year-old kids. Like, we don't have any of these answers. And Dylan took the pen for Mark and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll sign Elvis's ticket, but you have to get Elvis to sign my ticket. <laughs> and, How and, the hell did he have that in his pocket we, like that? That that and, perfect thing to say. And we were just like, and Mark said, Elvis is dead. And as Dylan is signing his name on the Elvis ticket, he hands the ticket back to Mark and he says, 
with the like raised eyebrow, is he? <laughs> and then he walked away. And I swear to God, every every bit of that story is true. Okay. I like I said earlier, if you're an animator or or we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I had Danny Fingeroth from Marvel Comics on. I've had a I've I've had the good fortune to have some some very renowned comic book artists on this show. We have got to turn this into some sort of visual short story because that is one of the greatest meeting Bob Dylan stories I've ever heard, Matt. I mean, that is just ridiculous how perfect that story is in every from every beat from the seeing Oxford Town, the one time you've seen it to following him like he's like you're tailing him. And then just yeah, that's exactly the interaction, except for your friend who, if I had had Bob even slightly seem like he was angry at me because I didn't rip my, I would like probably pee myself outside of that. But that, but then to have the Elvis thing, like you couldn't have a more, a more perfect item to have in your pocket to hand to Bob than something related to Elvis. I mean, well, it's funny because all these years later, and it's been many, I can't find my Tutwiler hotel brochure signed by Dylan, but I, I, texted my friend greg you know last year sometime and and he is like a you know he has shoe boxes with all of his stuff in it and you know i'm sure mine exists somewhere but if you could see how much stuff i have you'd understand why i couldn't find it but i but greg did uh has scans of all of his you know stuff over the years set lists and stuff that we've collected and he sent me when when I remember, I'll I'll text you a picture of Greg's Tutwiler Hotel <laughs> signature. But it, he he was very he he could not have been and 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 over the years I've come to be very good friends with a lot of people who have played with Bob and and I think you know this Daniel Lanois is a good friend of mine and I have heard a lot of stories about Dylan that um, you know are not always, you know, he's not always so nice to everybody. Um, he could not have been nicer to like a, tw- a you know, saucer-eyed 21-year-old kid or whatever I was at the time. Um, if, if you know, he was as nice as, as any, you know, quote-unquote famous person I've ever encountered could be. I, 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 uh... I feel like I have so many questions, but then that's going to make this episode be two hours. Yeah, long, yeah. Which no, is, there's nothing wrong with that, actually. But I, I feel like we could do a whole separate show. That, like, okay, my main question would be when he walks away finally, right? What did the three of you do? I would imagine it would be like the air just went out of the room at that point because you just, you just, it must have happened so fast. And then it's over and you're like, did that just really happen? I mean, was that what did you all, did the three of you look at each other like, holy shit. That, we did. That, that just that really, is, I, I think those, those, uh, those were the exact words. It wasn't until later that his, um, you know, much later and, and after, you know, reconnecting with Greg and saying, here's how I remember it. And, and, you know, Greg was like, yeah, you know, there was one little detail that I had, uh, misremembered that Greg correct. I mean, I had remembered somebody asking Dylan if his dog was nice. (laughs) And, and and I didn't even say that part of the story as he was walking by, 
you know, somebody said, is your dog nice? And he said, and his answer was sometimes. <laughs> of course, um, of course, of course. Exactly. That's what said. I mean, in hindsight, it couldn't have been like, I mean, I think if I, I I'm so glad, I, I'm glad to have met him. And I, and I, I've actually since met him a couple of other just random times, not, not, as as interesting as that but um and he was he was certainly nice those times as well but the interactions were much shorter the interaction it was one i met him one other time and it was just a very brief uh encounter but he couldn't have been nicer and i'm glad it wouldn't have changed the way i think about his music if he had said you know kiss off kid it would i wouldn't have stopped listening to the music sure, I mean, sure. but but having had that experience that certainly, you know, 30 years later to have seen that side of him again, I do know a lot of people who uh, have played with him and in his band and toured, you know, toured with him. I have a really good friend whose name I won't mention, who is a very famous musician who did some tours uh, with Dylan back in the 90s. They did about, I mean, some, you could probably figure this out. They did about 10 shows together and they were flipping openers because the other band was bigger at the time, even though Bob Dylan was Bob Dylan. And some nights this band opened and some nights Dylan opened. And, and my friend who did a Bob Dylan cover song in his set, but did a, but did it as a cover of somebody. It was a cover of a cover. My friend at the time wasn't even really a Bob Dylan fan. <laughs> um, but I had tried to explain to him why Dylan was such a great, you know, why he should be a Dylan fan. They did 10 shows together. And after the tour was over, the next time I ran into him, I was so excited to hear from him what his experience was with Dylan, you know, as a person who wasn't a fan, but was, opening and Dylan was opening for him. And when I ran into him at Christmas, I said, you've got to tell me what Dylan was like. And he said, I never met him. They were on tour for, you know, 10 day, 10 shows back in, you know, in arenas together. And, and they were the lead singers of their bands and they never, and he never met him. <laughs> I, I mean, that interaction that you have sounds like the perfect interaction. I mean, we, that we've talked about that on the show about like, you know, those of us who have not had that chance, what would be the perfect way to meet him? And that you had a series of events where you were with him kind of alone, but yeah. you were, you know, and it was friendly and it was, it, that is really quite like, that is the, the perfect way to meet him. I would imagine just, and it, it, and it was know. a way, it was a way from, it was a way from work for him mm -hmm. right the first time especially i mean the first time was away from work the second time it was you know 10 hours later and he or 15 hours later and he he remembered me mm -hmm. but the first time you know we were four hours from where he had played and and it 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 was not you know i don't i know you say this a lot like if bob were listening i'm sure he's not um <laughs> It was not a chance encounter, but we made it feel like one. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because uh, of circumstances. Unbelievable. That's un- that song. Back to the well. Okay, but one other thing though, before we go back to Oxford Town, because I have to mention this, is that you know you saw him at the one time he played this song live, and I again we you know we got to get back to Oxford Town, but I want to read the set list for this concert because this is one of the all time great Dylan. I have not gone back and looked at this. Okay, I'm going to be excited to hear this. This this set list is unreal. He opens with "My Head's in Mississippi," so okay, he's doing a cover. Great. Perfect, you know, because where he's playing in Mississippi. Yeah, sure. Then he goes to Tangled Up in Blue, My Back Pages, Silvio, Queen Jane Approximately, Masters of War, Gotta Serve Somebody. Then he does Oxford Town, Mr. Tambourine Man, Barbara Allen, Boots of Spanish Leather. Now, these, the next three songs I'm going to read are the, like, I don't know how you say it, the, the Ne Plus Ultra of of Bob Dylan songs to hear in a row because they represent the incredible diversity and perverseness of his set list sometime. So these, these he did these three songs in a row. Joey, Every Grain of Sand, and Wiggle Wiggle. I oh mean, God. for the love of God. <laughs> like, name another artist that has three songs like that that can be played back to back to back. Then he goes on, All Along the Watchtower... I'll be your baby tonight. I shall be released like a rolling stone blowing in the wind and ends with highway 61 revisited. Wow. That is one of the all time great set lists I've ever read in my life. So you went to a, a real banger of a show, man. I, I can promise you the show was not as good as the set list. Okay. Well, I just, I mean, I mean just the- it was good because we're all Bob Dylan fans and seeing Bob, you know, Seeing the alphabet would make us happy, maybe. But as long as he did, you know, even though he played Joey, sorry about that, Rob. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's an amazing, that's an amazing set list. I'm thinking of Bob with his paper out, right? And he's writing down the songs and he's deciding what order they're going in. And he's like, mm, and where are we going to put Joey? All right, we'll put Joey here. <laughs> and what should I follow Joey with? Oh, I know. Every grain of sand, one of the greatest songs ever written by any by anyone ever. And then, I, what do I follow it with? Oh, I know, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> well, to be fair, wiggle, wiggle, wiggle was the you know that was the album they were sure touring. under the red sky, right? Right. That's but right. It be, so, he doesn't always do that though. So he doesn't no, you right. I mean, that is I, just, I guess during that that tour, I heard Silvio a lot. I think they played that almost every like, night. Like to do that one, yeah. I heard I've heard that a bunch of times. So. Well, I mean, thank goodness that we are talking about a song as great as Oxford Town, because if it had been one of the lesser songs, it could not follow that story. I mean, that I feel like the show just should just stop with that story, because that is really one of the greatest I've met Bob stories I've I've ever heard in my entire life. But so, OK, uh, <laughs> Oxford Town, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Oxford Town is, you know, kind of loosely, you know, you mentioned that your dad liked his the protest music. Well, yes. this is, this is what we're talking about. This is exactly this. This song was supposedly inspired by a request from broadside magazine, which was to write a song about this real life event, which is about a man named James Meredith, who, by the way, is still with us. He's still, he's he still is, alive. He's, he's 89 years old, 89 years old, but he's still with us. And he, tr- he was a civil rights activist and he uh, tried to enroll at the university of Mississippi. And even though, the Supreme Court had decided back when the Supreme Court 
wasn't evil. The Supreme Court decided uh, that because taxpayers were paying for schools, they had to be desegregated. You couldn't segregate schools if everyone is paying to use them. And but unfortunately, in some states, yes, that was the law of the land, but it wasn't wasn't really going to happen because of the cultural forces. James Meredith insisted that he be uh, uh he was you know he had the grades and he was uh, that he be enrolled in the university of mississippi it turned into this whole thing where uh the school refused and then the governor who was a democrat at the time but he was one of those dixiecrat kind of guys stepped in and said no i'm not letting it happen and then the it got moved further up the chain and eventually it was overturned and there was a riot when james meredith uh, tried to enroll there and people were actually hurt and that is what Bob is singing about in this song. And uh, and the song ended up appearing in Broadside Magazine, and he did a demo for it, one of the Whitmark uh, demos. And the poor guy, I mean, James Meredith, you can only imagine the absolute garbage that he had to deal with uh, while he was there being the only black student. And I can recommend go to his Wikipedia page and read of some of the horrors that this poor man had to deal with from some of the complete racist assholes at the school. They turned and all after. the, and after, yes, of course. I mean, not that it stopped there, but I mean, he, you know, he couldn't sit at a table without all the white students turning their backs on him and getting up and where they would make noise. Uh, the, the ones that lived above him would make noise and bang the floor all night to keep him up. I mean, just absolute uh, nightmarish kind of stuff, but he, but he, but it worked. He enrolled and you know he graduated and he went on to a prestigious career. And it's sort of funny, again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but there's this great quote from him because apparently they sell, there's a statue of him and they celebrate this every, so I run every 10 years, they do a kind of anniversary and he was asked for a quote about it. And he said, it was an embarrassment quote. It was an embarrassment for me to be there and for somebody to celebrate it. Oh my God, I want to go down in history and have a bunch of things named after me. But believe me, that ain't it, which is absolutely kind of a very Dylan-esque sort of attitude about the whole thing. But so anyway, Dylan records this song for Free Wheelin', and uh, apparently uh, when he recorded it for John Hammond, who was producing the album, Hammond's response at the end of the song, because the song is barely two minutes, said, don't tell me that's all, which, <laughs> which is an amazing response here from your from your producer, but okay. Why did you want to talk about Oxford Town? Then? Well, it's just, again, the, 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 it's such a great song. It's a, you know, he says so much in, in so little, in, in so few verses and, 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 in, you know, it's interesting the, the subject that it's about, he never mentions directly. Right. He never mentions James Meredith. He never mentions James Meredith. And, 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 you know, for me personally, you know, like you, when when I got into Dylan listening to the early records, it was just a song that just resonated with me. And I've just I mean, and you think about it on that same album with this song are Blowing in the Wind, Girl from the North Country, Masters of War, Hard Rain, Don't Think Twice. I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's just- Right. On one record and somehow this song, you know, sandwiched between all of those really holds its own. And I think it is a real testament to, you know, his his, you know, his mastery. 
Yeah, I mean, there's something about the brevity of it that makes it work so effectively is that he's telling this kind of serious story. But then the fact, again, it is so peppy. I mean, it's just one of the great kind of catchy melodies that he's ever constructed. I mean, it's just so immediately kind of start tapping your foot to it. And the song, the second verse is he went down to Oxford town, guns and clubs followed him down all because his face was brown. It better get away from Oxford town. By the way, I love you know, the, 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 the rhymes piling up on top of each other, town, down, brown, town. And then he says, Oxford town, round the bend, you come to the door, couldn't get in all because of the color of his skin. What do you think about that, my friend? And it's, it's funny. He's sort of using the same structure, uh, for blowing in the wind and that he's asking a question. He's asking right. the audience, what do you think about this? And he's not leading you to draw a conclusion. I mean, obviously, we know what conclusion he feels about it. But he's asking you, what do you think about this? And he's just sort of presenting the story. And it's almost like this is a guy who just saw this in the paper. Yeah. And and maybe that's exactly what it was. He saw it and just said, oh, okay, here, well, what do you think about this? And, you know, in just three verses, in a, this is probably 45 seconds into the song, he's already set this story which is amazingly compelling. Like, okay, this guy went down to Oxford town. Again, it's not, it's, it's Oxford, Mississippi, not Oxford town, Right. but okay. We, we get the setup with incredible, uh, uh, brevity of language. He puts across so much in just 12 lines, all because of the color of his skin. What do you think about that? My friend, you're like, well, yeah, I don't think too much of it. You know, uh, it's, it's unbelievable how much he can pack into this tune. And it ends, you know, somebody better investigate soon. And this, in this example of a Dylan song, he, like you said, it's clear we know where he stands as the narrator, right? Yeah. But he's not, he's not, um, it's just like, here are the facts, sir. Here are the facts, ma'am. And, you know, somebody should look into this and that's it. And then we're out, you know, leaving it to us like so many of his songs, like not trying to tell us what to think, though clearly he is, he is leading us uh, with the story to, to think about this. Um, it's just a brilliant song. And and like you said, the, and it, but it's strange because the, the, the tune and the lyrics don't seem to go together, but they do. <laughs> but it works. Right. Yeah. I love in the fourth, verse that he expands the story out where he says me and my gal my gal's son which again that's just an interesting my gal's son well that does that mean i guess he's got a girl his girlfriend is has a has her own child because you wouldn't refer to your your gal's son as that way you would say our son but he says me and my gal and my gal's son okay we got met with a tear gas bomb i don't even know why we come going back where we come from which again i think is you know, uh, bringing up the idea that a lot of people came from other parts of the country to go to these protests and got met with violence. And so all of a sudden now, which is one verse in with now we've now met these other characters that have come here, presumably in support of, yeah. you know, James Meredith or the, the character in the song. And this is what they're met with. They're getting met with a tear gas bomb. I don't even know why we come going back where we come from. So for again, such a peppy tune it's so downbeat because these people come to try and help and they're met with tear gas and they're beaten up and they kind of shrug and say, well, I don't even know why we did this. We're, we're leaving. And it's very sad. It's like, well, they, they're trying to do the right thing and yet they're met with nothing but resistance and they've, they kind of just give up. 
and and I don't know if he was thinking of this, but one of the criticisms, you know, that, you know, during this turbulent time uh, down here, I mean, I'm in Atlanta during this, this time, you know, there were a lot of Northern liberals coming down, trying to make a change down here. Um, and, and a lot of, uh, there was some criticism about, you know, you, you know, you guys can come down here and, you know, protest and all that. And then you leave, we all have to go to work here. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. You're, you get to come, you get to come in and protest and do all this and then you leave. But the rest of us, uh, especially people of color, the, you know, we have to go work with these people the next, you know, and you're stirring up all of this all ultimately for the good. But that, that idea is sort of in there. We're going back where we came from. Yeah. When I was doing research, we for the can song. do because this is, you know, it's like, this is not our problem. I mean, not in a bad way. This is not our problem. Right. Right. Like I said, when I was doing some research for the song, there were some of the readings of it were suggesting that that, at least that verse is a little bit of Bob criticizing people coming in and kind of almost doing like kind of civil rights tourism kind of thing of like, Oh, I want to be there for this. And, you know, again, all to the good. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a good thing that you want to change something that you think is bad going on in the country and you have every right to protest no matter what. But at the same time, yeah, it's like you're coming down and causing, this 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 is what's going. I want to say causing trouble. It's not exalt that at all. What I meant, but you're coming down, and then when the going gets tough, you can just leave, and not everyone else is so lucky. And so some people have read that as Bob's criticism of that approach. I don't. I've never heard that. Every time I've heard this song, I've just that's just never been something I picked up on. I can see that read in it, but right. you know the song goes by at such a pace that I don't. You know, I just always thought, well, he's just he's just bringing in the narrator into the song. You know, it's, it's, it's going from an omniscient narrator to a character like, okay, I saw this and I'm going down with my, again, the, the, my gal's son is such a strange detail to throw in, to add that in there. But think about it though. When Dylan did get married, there was already a child. It wasn't a son, but there already was. So it, it, I don't, it's not omniscient, you know, it wasn't omniscient, but it is interesting. Yeah. It's 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 such an un- unnecessary, interesting detail to to put it in, and it gives it again a little more specificity. That okay, this is like a real person that maybe Bob knows who went down with his girlfriend and the girlfriend's son. Okay, this is maybe somebody that he really knows. And so then the the final verse, sort of, is a, at least on the recorded version, is Oxford Town in the afternoon. Everybody's singing a soft. I've always heard him say soft tune, but on the lyrics on BobDylan.com, it says everyone's singing a sorrowful tune. I don't quite, I've never been able to hear him say that. Uh, two men died neath the Mississippi moon. Somebody better investigate soon is that line you just quoted. And again, it's the perfect way to end the song of this kind of stepping back and saying, hey, uh, you know, due to all this, two men died because of this, and we need to look into this. Somebody needs to look into this. And there's something so weirdly jaunty about that, just the way he sort of says, somebody better investigate soon. There's a kind of detached tone to it a little bit. Somebody better investigate yeah. soon. But at the same time, it is a little like, hey, everybody, we might want to be looking into this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, 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 there's a like so many of his songs, there's so many different ways to read that 
you know, one is just that I'm just reporting it to you. I'm just telling mm. you what happened and I don't have an answer. Somebody should go down and investigate this. You're not yeah. going to find the answer in the, you know, four verses above this. Right. You, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, I'm, I'm a songwriter. It's not my job to offer a solution. It's my job to, you know, to amplify it for you and tell you this is happening. Yeah, right. He, he's retweeting it in a modern parlance on Bob Dylan exactly. dot, on Bob Dylan dot com and on the Whitmark demo. Uh, he repeats the first verse again with the Oxford Town Oxford and everybody's get their heads bowed down, which on the Whitmark demo makes the song a little longer. It's about two and a half minutes on the Whitmark demo. And I remember hearing that thinking, Oh, how's this one so much longer? It doesn't need that. It, I think the song works because it is so ridiculously brief and then just ending it with it somebody better investigate soon it's the perfect way to go out you don't need any more the song just somebody better investigate and then he does the dent and then boom we're out and you're just kind of left like wow that was he packed a lot in there and i mean it's so interesting that when he takes this approach for other songs like you know hattie carroll where he's taking a real situation and that song is long and very detailed and it gets into all of the grit of the people and everything else. And then this is the completely opposite version of that, which is the briefest explanation of this story. And we're going to get in, get out. And there's something about it being so short that it, it's sort of, um, it like announced it's almost like it's, re- it's almost like meta, like it's reflecting on itself. Like, can you believe I just told you this story in like a minute 45? It's just, uh, you know, and you're just like, wow. And then he moves right on to talking World War Three blues or whatever. And you're just like, wow, that it's almost like I, I got to listen to that again. Cause that, that I was able to follow all that. He just packed into, into, into such a short period of time. It's, it's the level of confidence this guy is showing on freewheeling. Of course, as the songs you just mentioned, anyone who's written those songs at this point knows he's got the goods. And he must be he must be flying high, but there's just something so wonderfully cocky about being able to tell you this story about such such an important issue and tell it in such miniature. It's it's a I mean it's a remarkable song and made more remarkable for the what you just said and and again he did all of that without mentioning. The University of Mississippi, James mm-hmm. Meredith, what it's about. You know what it's about. Uh, and, and also, we're listening to this song 60 years after it was released. And so we know the story, you know, now, I guess, maybe with, you know, this far along. But he's told a whole story in, in so few words without specifically telling any story. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing this song for the first time when I got Freewheelin', and I did not know specifically what he's referring to. I knew, you know, I knew of uh, about the civil rights uh, movement in the 60s and stuff like that. And I figured, well, okay, I didn't know that it was a literal thing. That it was maybe a true story that he was just sort of taking it as a, a, you know, a grander comment about what was going on at the time. And I knew that people had been killed and stuff like that. But I, and then I, I don't remember when I learned about it. It was pre-internet, but I remember reading and going and looking it up and going, wow, okay, this was, this was so specific. This is like an actual thing. And again, the, the idea that you could 
hear this, I mean, again, maybe it was the call from Broadside that inspired him to do it, or maybe he just had it in his in his mind the whole time anyway, and then it just sort of came, it was serendipitous. But just the power to be able to take something going on in the world and be able to create a song about it that's so powerfully catchy and and lyrically so wonderful, wonderfully dense, and turn that turn that real life event into that seemingly and it sounds so effortless it's the performance too it sounds so effortless it sounds like he's just tossing this off in the best possible way obviously working on it really hard but it he's the vocal is kind of so uplifting and it just sounds like i don't know it just it the as you talked about the other songs on this record are the tower some of the towering achievements of his career and then you've got this in there, but to me, this stands along those other songs in a completely different way, but it stands shoulder to shoulder with all those other songs you just mentioned. Which is remarkable given yeah. its brevity and its lack of specificity and, and, uh, and very specifically about, a, a you know, real events that were happening for people hearing this record in, you know, in real time. I mean, he was, he was, you know, sounding the call to what was happening in this part of the, in this part of the country for a lot of people hearing this record who maybe weren't as familiar with what was happening. Yeah. It's it. It's, it's always remained one of my favorite songs of his. It's just so, uh, again, so catchy and yet so powerful and talking about a real thing. And it's, it has always been one of my, I just, I just love it to pieces. Well, and once once we decided to do this song, I uh, I have never met Mr. Meredith, but we have a very dear mutual friend who has uh, been been offering uh, over the last couple of years to, you know, my friend lives in Mississippi and has done a lot of work with Mr. Meredith. And she's invited me to come to dinner and, and meet uh, uh, Mr. Meredith and his wife and have dinner and I and. Once we decided to do this song, I reached out to her and I told her about this podcast and hmm. you and I were going to be talking and and she invited me to come down and they were doing a screening of a documentary about James Meredith that his his wife made and they invited me to come to the screening and unfortunately I was not able to make it but but she told me that last year um Dylan was playing, I forget if we could look on the tour. He played in Mississippi. I forget if it was Jackson or um, somewhere. It wasn't Oxford. He was playing somewhere in Mississippi. And uh, a third party reached out to Dylan's people and said, hey, you're coming. You know, Dylan is coming to Mississippi. And I would like to facilitate an introduction of James Meredith and Bob. Oh, wow. And so my friend, you know, they got tickets. Dylan sent tickets to James Meredith and Mr. Meredith put on a suit because people of his generation do that. They put on a suit. He went, they went to the concert. They went downtown, had a nice dinner, went to the concert and at the, 11th hour Dylan canceled uh, their meet and greet post show hmm. uh, 
with without for no reason that I'm aware of. Um, and all of the handful of people that were with Mr. Meredith were very disappointed. And he was not. He said that he, you know, it was a great concert and it was very kind of Bob Dylan to invite him to the show. And he he loved he loved the show and and, you know, was fine. Not was fine that they didn't have a chance to meet afterwards. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I tried to find research. I tried to find any details about whether they ever had met. And obviously the answer is no. That's really yeah. If they you read not- his biography, he's an interesting guy. Like he doesn't he he he's not necessarily like that quote I read. You know, I mean he's not living yeah. off of this kind of like dining off of it. He went and did lots of other things and he right, went went to was in the military and has done a lot of other things and this was kind of I think from the outside, a lot of people are like, wow, that must be something that worth commemorating. And you got that quote from him where he's like, no, it was a horrible experience. I mean, obviously it, it did a lot of good because it really did sort of put the first big crack in the notion that, yeah, uh, the law says this stuff has to be done, but in practical terms, not everybody is enforcing this, but it's going to be enforced. This is what we're going to do. But, uh, but, you know, Meredith, almost like Bob Dylan in the sixties, like, okay, I did that important thing, but now I'm moving on. That's right. So. And, and, you know, he, he did a, 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 a walk, a march. I don't know. He would probably call it a walk from Memphis down to Jackson to raise awareness. And, uh, on his walk, I think he was on the first day of his walk. He got shot. This was after all of this. He got shot and, uh, had to abandon the walk. Other people took up. Uh, his his cause and finish the the walk for him. But you know the other thing that that I didn't even realize until my friend pointed it out. And of course, all you have to do is do the math, and it makes sense. He was uh, almost thirty years old, I think, when he was doing this. So he was he was already an active. Um, he had already been active in you know c- you know civil rights work. Yeah, he wasn't a kid, right? He was not an 18-year-old kid doing this, not unlike Rosa Parks. He sort of was uh, uh, the right person for the job to to do, you know, to try to integrate the school. He had, you know, maturity and composure and, you know, wouldn't, uh, you know, if, if I were in the position that, you know, James Meredith or Rosa Parks or any of those people, I'm sure punches would have been thrown. <laughs> and, you know, he was a seasoned, uh, you know, veteran of the cause, so to speak. And, you know, like Jackie Robinson. Mm. So Jackie was sort of handpicked to integrate baseball because he, you know, unlike somebody like me, he had the temperament for it. He would, you know, he could, he knew what he would face and yeah. he was willing to face it. And uh, he's a remark, you know, we're, I know we're here talking about Bob Dylan, but it, it's, we we should, you know, we've said his name a few times, but it's because of heroes like James Meredith that we're, you know, whatever is left of this country, it's here because of people like him. And, and uh, you know, kudos to Dylan for in 63, uh, writing the writing a song like this to 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 shed light on on what was happening, right? And that, not far be it for me to presume to what James Meredith 
thinks about anything, obviously. But I have to think going by just the brief readings I've done about him. And, and as you said, he, you know, he was not a kid. He's not like he was 17. He was a grown man by this point. I would, you know, we'll never know whether James, I don't know if anyone has ever asked him about what did he, what does he think of this song? But I would imagine that if, if Meredith is relatively unromantic about that experience, that he probably likes this song because the song doesn't idolize him. As you say, it doesn't even mention him. It mentions right. the story, but it doesn't set him up as like, oh, the great James Meredith did that. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. It just, it sets the story, lets you draw your own conclusion. But uh, so I would almost imagine that if, if James Meredith is maybe the kind of person I'm imagining he is from my reading of my very brief reading about him, this would be the kind of song he would like because it's, it puts the point across. The real message is the, in, the institutionalized racism that's going on and that had that has to be fought tooth and nail at every step of the way. And that's something that Meredith has committed himself to. So I, I could only imagine maybe he likes this song that he heard it, you know, he knows it, knows it exists and thinks, Oh, all right. Yeah. He, I like he it. absolutely knows it exists. And I think, you know, again, I haven't heard this firsthand. I think he's honored that the song exists and, and, and wouldn't want, uh, you know, as I forget the, you know, exactly how my friend explained it to him, you know, it's not his song, Bob Dylan wrote it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's uh, he's glad it exists and I think he appreciates it. And, um, but again, everybody else was disappointed that he didn't meet Bob Dylan. And I guess by extension, they didn't meet Bob Dylan, (laughs) but he wasn't. Right. He He was perfectly fine to go home after the concert. Interesting guy. Interesting yeah. guy. So, uh, well, like I said, Oxford Town, it's just terrific. It's one of the deep cuts. Uh, I, on just a, a couple of weeks ago at the time you're hearing this, uh, I got interviewed on Jim Salvucci's, uh, Dylan Taunt's podcast, which was, which was great fun. And one of the questions that he asked me was, how did you know? At what point did you know that you were in, you were in deep? And the answer I gave was, well, once I got past, when I was buying all of Bob's records and I got past the hits, you know, then I started to say, well, all right, let me listen to the, you know, the deeper cuts and do, what do I like about, do I like those or am I just kind of like surface level? Am I just like a greatest hits guy? And this was one of those songs that I had never heard outside of the context of freewheeling. And I loved it immediately. And that was, re- it was one of those ones where I went, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in for the long haul with this guy. Cause even the, even the obscure songs I really love. So, uh, thank you for wanting to talk about this because it's, it's just terrific. And I'm glad we finally got around to doing it on the show. Well, I was glad that, uh, that you hadn't already talked about it and that it lined up, you know, with a song that I just feel, you know, I was like through no, no fault of my own happened to be there the one time he played it. Unbelievable. That, Matt, that is, I, I, you buried the lead on that because you didn't mention that at all in our email prep. Well, for I this. didn't. And I wanted. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about it now. I wanted to tell I, you that. Well, I, that was an unbelievable story. I am so envious of that. I I can't even I can't even explain just the idea of you know I meeting Bob's dog like all of it, just every bit of it. Every again, animators. If if someone has some free time and you want to do like an archer thing where it's just kind of very stiff figures moving around, please, this has got to be turned into some sort of short story, short animated film that we could put up on our YouTube channel because 
and just take the audio. Just, I'll take all myself out. We'll just put Matt's Matt's narration. And, and, and for authenticity's sake, the band Wire Train was opening. Wire Train. It was Wire Train. Okay. They were opening okay. that run of shows. And Mark, that particular day, I'll never forget this. He was wearing a Wire Train t-shirt. <laughs> Not a Bob Dylan t-shirt. A Wire Train t-shirt. Which is probably why... Bob signed his autograph. If he had been wearing a Bob Dylan t-shirt, I doubt Mark would have gotten an autograph. Maybe so. Maybe so. Well, again, that's one of the great, one of the great meeting Bob stories of all time. So Matt, I mean, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for your generosity with uh, the Jane Fonda photo. It's one of really, I just absolutely I smile every time I look at it in the house. So uh, thank you for, for, for all, all of this. Thank you for everything you, you you've done for me. And thank you for being on the show. I really, really had a great time. It feels weird to, to hear your voice talking to me after hearing it <laughs> hundreds of times uh, talking to other people. So glad to finally uh, join you for one. Absolutely. So, okay. Well, let's do our exit question, and then because the, you're new to the show, I'll, you can answer either uh, or both if you prefer. So, what what Bob recording session would you love to sit in on? If it could be anything, or if you want to answer the other question, is what bootleg series would you love for? Event? You know, they 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 um, sit you down, Matt, and they say, Matt, what, we we have access to everything. What do you want to hear as the next bootleg series? What what would it be? Well, because Dan is a friend, and my friend Brian Blade. Uh, played on time out of mind the the one that i was eagerly anticipating is, i have the deluxe version upstairs right now so uh the fragments um one was one i was eagerly awaiting so i'm going to pass on that one because i think my dream uh my dream bootleg series now exists gotcha um Recording session. God, there's so many. Um, honestly, the, the, the real answer is any of them just being a, you know, I've been in a lot of recording studios making records with people, but being in any recording studio, I think for me, I, the one I'm going to say two, if that's, uh, if it's legal to say that I would love <laughs> to have been a fly on the wall during the making of rough and rowdy ways. Mm -hmm. uh, just, I would love to see, you know, that age Dylan making music in that environment. Um, but probably blonde on blonde. I would like to have been there with in Nashville during that time when some of those crazy late nights were happening, that record is such a brilliant record. And so ahead of its time, I think that's probably the one I would, I would, I would like to have been there for. All right. Fair enough. Great answers. Uh, great answers all around. So, well, Matt, again, thank you. Thank you. Once again, I really appreciate this. It was just a absolutely marvelous uh, conversation. Uh, is there any place you want to point people to, if they want to find you out on the internet? I mean, I'm on, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a lurker on Twitter. It's just my name, Matt Arnett on Twitter, but you won't get much there. Um, on Instagram, I'm much more active. Uh, grocery on home is my name on, uh, on Instagram. 
And I, I just, speaking of, you know, these turbulent times in the South, I just executive produced another podcast completely not Dylan related at all called Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, which is a, which deals with the same period in history in Alabama. It's, I, I'm, it's something I'm very proud of. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's probably right. it. I work, I work with an artist named Lonnie Holly, uh, who is a visual artist and a musician and, and now a very uh, big Bob Dylan fan himself, um, just because he has to ride. We ride in the car together a lot and he's become a Bob Dylan fan and I've taken him. He's 73 years old and he's become a Bob Dylan fan and I've taken him to some shows and, uh, check out his work. All right. Sounds good. He's a brilliant creator as well. Never too late to become a Bob fan. So, uh, well, again, thank you. Thank you once again, Matt. This is just a delightful conversation. Thanks, uh, of Rob. Course, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you. So, of course, everybody, you can find all the back episodes of the show on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, Please just go to patreon.com slash FW podcast like these fine folks did. Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Rocky Meckel, Parvother, and Henry Bernstein. So that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. You said Oxford Town. Well, Oxford back in, Town is, is, is not it, about America. It's about America. more than that. It's about, yeah, it's about, uh, you could, I wrote that a long, long time. I wrote that when was it, when it happened. And I could have written that yesterday. It's still the same. Why doesn't somebody investigate? You know, it's a, that's one verse in the song. It's the last verse. You know, that's a, somebody better investigate soon. <laughs>